of you nerds, we took a little bit of a hiatus, but we are back on track here. So I am Agent Smith, a.k.a. Tyler, one of your hosts. And I'm Charlie, a.k.a. Captain Rogers. And as always, this is Nerdy by Nature. We thank you for listening. And if you listened to our last episode, we had promised you a full review of Watchmen, the graphic novel. Of course, due to some unforeseen circumstances, we had to cut that particular episode and we are doing a hybrid episode where we're going to do some callbacks and referencing to the graphic novel and more so focus on the recently released Watchmen TV series that just launched on HBO and that was on October the 20th and episode one was enjoyable for a lot of us who have read the graphic novel so if you haven't read the graphic novel I don't want to say I don't want to say Charlie that it's essential to right. read the graphic novel and then watch the TV series but I do think you would be beneficial to read the graphic novel first and then watch episode one or at least if you've already watched episode one you're like well this seems interesting but there were some moments that didn't quite make sense or i've I've heard of i've watched you know watchman the movie right uh, but there were still some parts that maybe it's been a while since you've watched that movie you know you may want to go back and watch it again and read the graphic novel so we would recommend that you you definitely at least do one or the other before picking up this particular tv series because there are some callbacks that i think a lot of people i know we appreciated that we'll talk about on, on this episode. Right. But uh, I think right out of the gate, it's it's off to a, a good start. And I also think it's important to note that the average TV watcher that, you know, might watch this particular show uh, may not get into it right away and may not stick with it. So that's right. why I wanted to definitely make sure we address that right out of the gate, that this is kind of for DC fanboys and fangirls that have read the graphic novel, I think will appreciate it more than the, the average TV watcher. I don't know, but this will have a, a Game of Thrones type following. Right. Yeah, they, um, in watching the first episode, you can definitely tell that this is very much a world that would have progressed after the end of either the movie or the graphic novel, and there are things that happen in the episode that would be callbacks to the graphic novel, and then there's things that happen that would be callbacks to, you know, the, the movie, but because the movie was a very, very strong adaptation from the graphic novel, yes, there was some stuff left out, but for the most part, it was probably the the most accurate to its source material that I've ever seen. I have to agree with that. I think in some instances there was even a, you know scenes that were stripped right from the panel onto the big screen. Definitely. Uh, which was pretty cool. And you know, of course the biggest change that I suppose rubbed some traditionalists the wrong way and certainly Alan Moore, which I don't know that he's ever actually been happy with a, a movie adaptation of any of his work. Right, yeah, I don't think he has, and which is an interesting part of the show. In watching the show, I I consciously watched the very end during the credits to see if his name was anywhere, which I know that he didn't want his name anywhere on this show, but it was still odd to me to see the absence of his name. I mean, it it, it definitely shows Dave Gibbons and says co-creator Dave Gibbons, but it never says Alan Moore anywhere, and that was just really jarring to me to see. Right, you you almost expect to to see his name because it is so iconic and, you know, is the godfather of graphic novels among other things such as a wizard etc etc <laughs> right um so you know it was odd to not see it but on the same hand knowing his history with how he does usually doesn't appreciate direct film or tv adaptations right. not necessarily surprising but what surprised some people to go back to my earlier point about the the big change in the movie from the graphic novel is that of course if you read the graphic novel and i should probably at this point go ahead and say spoiler alert we're about to go right into the review of the 
uh, partially of the graphic novel, somewhat of the movie, and obviously the TV series episode one, the pilot episode. Right. So at this point, if you have not watched or, or read, read any, any of, of this, <laughs> feel free to fast forward or go listen to another episode because we're about to dive right into the thick of it. Mm-hmm. But so the biggest issue that some people had, and of course with Alan Moore as well, is that in the graphic novel, the way that it ends and comes to a close is that Ozymandias, otherwise known as Mr. Beat, is a you know, wealthy, powerful businessman at this point. He's arguably the smartest man in the world, as he's referenced to in the graphic novel. Right. And of course, the comedian makes the joking line of, you know, eventually if we keep this Cold War up and have a nuclear holocaust, you'll be the smartest man on the tender. Right. And so, uh, at the very end, all along throughout the graphic novel, you're being introduced to somewhat of a project that he's been working on with Dr. Manhattan. And ultimately, what that ends up being is summoning this alien, fake alien squid-like creature. Yeah, I've heard it called an interdimensional squid. Right, that comes to more or less like downtown Manhattan, New York, mm-hmm. and causes a psionic or psychic shockwave that disrupts quite a bit and causes quite a bit of chaos, and that also, of course, puts some of the blame partially on Dr. Manhattan. The city is believed that he was the one behind this. How can we trust these quote-unquote superheroes? Right. And, of course, that ends up leading directly to a peace agreement between the U.S. and the Soviets. They say, hey, let's drop all this nuclear war. Our main focus needs to be on outlawing these mass vigilantes. Let's come together and sustain peace and avoid the nuclear holocaust that Beat was very much aware was going to come. And so he, of course, was the one pulling all of the strings behind the scenes so that he could benefit from both (laughs) at the end of the day, as most heroes turned villains often do. (laughs) Um, So, of course, flip over to Watchmen the movie. And in my personal opinion, I don't know how you feel about it, Charlie, but in my personal opinion, I actually like the flip that they did in the movie. Right. Because yeah. instead of a interdimensional squid, which would have been, frankly, hard to palette for the average moviegoer, mm-hmm. I think Hollywood made a good decision in changing it slightly. Because really, like you said to your point earlier, up until that point, it was pretty much a direct script-for-script, panel-for-panel adaptation of the graphic novel. Definitely. But in the end, they changed, instead of a squid, they substitute just a series of nuclear attacks or explosions that are set off that look very Manhattan-esque. Right. Because in the movie, he and Manhattan are working on a machine that mm-hmm. he sends over in full at one point to his ice layer, uh, wherever that is, undisclosed location in the world. And so then he eventually enacts that, and it causes all these nuclear explosions, etc., etc. Mm-hmm. And so then that's what causes the U.S. and the Soviets to realize, hey, whoa, you know, Manhattan's a threat. Anybody that's a superhero or mass vigilante is a threat. Let's stop this right in its tracks. So that's the, the one big situation that a lot of people will say, oh, well, you know, that wasn't the way that it happened in the graphic novel. The movie got it wrong. Like, it was a perfect movie up until that point. Right. Yeah, and to that point, Regina King, who plays the main character, Angela Abar, I think is how it's pronounced, uh, there's a scene where she's taking her son home from school, and all of a sudden you hear sirens, and, like, all the cars stop in the middle of the street, and it starts raining baby squids. And so I can see that, like, if you've read the graphic novel, then, yeah, you're going to understand what that's referencing and and talking about and I've heard several people saying that even like that Ozymandias might have something to do with that that he like somehow created this and is doing this with the weather just to remind people of what happened and to keep people at check and so but if you haven't read the graphic novel then I could see that part of the episode being very just out there and sort of strange or odd like okay squids are falling from the sky right so random 
and everybody's okay with it. Right, and so that was a big a big change, or not a big change, but like a big aspect of the show following the graphic novel versus the show following the movie. I think for me, that was the directors and the creative team making that decision. I feel like when they were creating this TV series, they had to make that decision of, okay, are we going to cherry pick from both the movie and the graphic novel? Are we going to pick up from where the graphic novel left off? Are we going to pick up from where the movie left off? off. Right. They, they both more or less leave off from the same place, mm-hmm. just with different connotations in the sense that, like we said, obviously one ends with the giant fake alien squid psychic shockwave situation. The other ends with essentially just a series of nuclear explosions caused by, air quote, Dr. Manhattan. Right. So I think for them, this was their message of, hey, you know, just so you guys know, we're picking up from the graphic novel version, and this is where those squids are coming from. Right. And I will say that I understand why they're not doing it with any of the other characters, but I really kind of hope, uh, especially since it's being hinted at and showing glimpses, if Dr. Manhattan is in this show, I really hope that they either bring Billy Crudup back to play him, or at least have him doing the voice of Dr. Manhattan. I know, because that character, I don't see aging. No, not at all. Given the you know superpowers of Dr. Manhattan, I mean, he's essentially immortal. Right. So he's going to exist until even time itself ends and so yeah I think it would be a, a real treat for Billy Crudup to to come back as Dr. Manhattan and again they might choose to make him look a little bit differently just because of it being a different slightly different show different version right uh, but following the same timeline same characters of course obviously uh, but it would just be really nice for them to have that somewhat continuity with Crudup doing at least like you said the voiceover mm-hmm. for Dr. Manhattan because the way that he did it in the film I mean was just perfect he, they couldn't have picked a better guy to be Dr. Manhattan, in my opinion, and the way that the, the show starts, I think, is really interesting because, obviously, of course, this particular TV series speeds up 34 years after the event that took place in 1985, whether it's, you know, your version, if you want the squid version, or if you want the, right. you know, multiple nuclear explosions, your choice, uh, but for this particular show, it's very much the squid route, mm-hmm. and so they pick up in 2019, and it's a very different landscape in the United States. Vietnam is actually a U.S. state. Uh, we learned that. Right. Of course, Detective Angela Abar's character, she actually lived in Vietnam for a time, came mm. back over. But the very beginning of the show starts way back in 1921 in Tulsa, which is where the show is, of course, set in 2019. Mm-hmm. But we flash back to 1921 and get a little bit of a, a tragic history lesson as they start in the middle of a, a very real, actual historical tragedy that was the Tulsa Black Wall Street Massacre, what's also known as the Tulsa Race Riot. Unfortunately, race tensions were very high back right. in this time period, and it's not pretty early on, but we're introduced right away to this little boy in the theater enjoying kind of a caped hero right. silent film, if you will. And so his parents pick him up, scoop him up, and say, hey, you know, the town's being raided, we have to get you out of here, let's go, follow your mother. And so then he sends him off, the father, with a little slip of paper. We don't quite see what's on the slip of paper at the beginning. Right. And then, of course, they have an unfortunate stagecoach accident. He survives, which I think early on they're trying to hint that maybe this particular child is quote-unquote special right. or might maybe have some kind of special abilities or mm-hmm. I don't know if it's super strength or a healing factor or, or what have you but he makes it out right. with his little I'm assuming baby sister he cradles are almost like it's he's got a sister and there might have been another baby involved in the carriage they were getting multiple families out at one time right not sure but then of course from that it flash forwards to a still a very racially intense Tulsa mm-hmm. uh, because the first 
first moment we notice it's a cop pulling over, you know, seemingly average celery or uh, lettuce farmer. <laughs> right. And so then it just kind of takes off from there. I was going to say, it seems like, you know, The Watchmen, like the graphic novel, was a very uh, social commentary heavy book in that, you know, it talked about the, the Russians and, and the Cold War. And this one seems like it's going to be, I don't know that I would say heavily, judging by the first episode at least, it's going to have a, an underlying theme or, or discussion over the over race relations and civil unrest in this current world that they are living in. Right, and I think we get a, a little slice of that in Tulsa, and we're also to understand from this episode that it's this is not the only place where this is happening. This is right. going on countrywide. It seems very much like a, a country divided, because there are certain scenes where you notice that there are some Richard Nixon posters, or even, a, I think, in one of the trailer parts, there is a Richard Nixon kind of... Like mural. Character statue. Statue, yeah. And so it's like, hmm, well, that's odd, because there have been a lot of other presidents <laughs> right. after Nixon and our timeline. Right. But of course we have to think of this in the context of this particular storyline. an alternate U.S. Right. Alternate and... country, alternate you know, world situation. And because of the incident that occurred back in 1985, mm-hmm. you know, Nixon eventually was out of office. And then of course Robert Redford is the president in this particular alternate timeline, if you will. And not to be right. confused, to the best of our knowledge, with the actual actor right. itself. Right. So we don't know if it has to do with the actor right. or if it's just the name like to... that they We'd like to think not, probably just the name that they chose. Right. Uh, but so this particular president has been president since 1992. It's a long time. It's a long time. <laughs> so you can tell that, you know, things are very much so different in this version of the United States. Right. Because obviously politics are quite different. You know, this guy has been president for, you know, roughly 30 years. And so it's just like, okay, what's going on here? This is a neat little twist. Mm-hmm. And one of those, I think, that speaks to the, the time period and just the alternate time line of this show is that the police officer that pulls over the quote-unquote lettuce farmer mm-hmm. has to ask permission to use his firearm. It's locked in to a gun holster right. in his car. Yeah, that was crazy to me when I first saw that. And so from there, uh, with that particular scene, we find out very quickly that this is not your run-of-the-mill pullover. Mm-hmm. He, he knows why he's pulling this particular individual over. I don't want to say that he's profiling him, but he just gets this sense that mm, you know, this guy made be a little bit more than what he's leading on to be. Right. Uh, because, of course, he goes through all the questions, very routine. Gentleman that he pulls over acts like everything's fine. Like, oh, yeah, I'll get my license registration out of the left compartment. Give me just a moment. You know, <laughs> right. Do you mind if I reach over there and grab it? And he does. And at that moment, that's when the officer recognizes the kind of tinge of a little bit of a beige or like a, a Rorschach yes right. mask and is like, oh, okay. Right. Yeah, and you get the impression that there's been a, I don't know that I'd say cult, but a, a big following of it seems kind of culty. Uh, yeah, of Rorschach, and after the events of the graphic novel slash movie, that there was a big organization uh, called the Seventh Cavalry that was followers of, of that situation, and and of course, obviously, at the end of the Watchmen, Rorschach's journal gets out, and so we haven't really been, not a lot has been explained about the outcome of that yet, but with this Seventh Cavalry and them wearing the Rorschach mask and everything, obviously there's been some kind of impact. Yeah, I, I think it had, unfortunately for, for Rorschach, unintentional consequences right. of it falling into the wrong hands and they get this ideology of his altru- altruistic way of justice. Right. They take it to the whole another level and they actually, it is a, a pretty neat 
callback, I will say in the sense that, because let's be honest here, we're talking about, in this TV series, a white supremacy group. Right, yeah. Uh, you know, they're, they're not the good guys by any means. But it is a nice callback in the sense that they have the actual first entry by Rorschach of his take on the city right. as kind of their oath or their creed. And so I thought that was a, a neat callback for them to do. And there's a number of different callbacks and Easter eggs throughout this first pilot episode. Uh, for example, to go back to Regina King, she's in the classroom setting mm-hmm. early on because, of course, we find out later in the pilot episode that she is a quote-unquote baker. Right. Former police detective turned baker due <laughs> right. to events. And so it's just really neat. She cracks a couple ends into a bowl and the first two you know, land and then the third one she makes the third one into a smile right and in one of the first two it has just a little tinge uh, of blood right and so the iconic you know badge from the comedian that falls off onto the sidewalk and is the actual cover of our trade both of our trade paperbacks that we have here in front of us so right. just a nice little little callback there among others oh yeah and it appears that this 7th Cavalry was a prominent group that I'm assuming kind of went away or went into hiding at some point and with that scene where you see the guy with the mask and everything, they get the impression that this group is, I guess, coming out of hiding or or becoming more of a presence again and so we don't really know a whole lot about them right now but I'm assuming we'll, we'll get more history and more idea of what they're about. And it seemed to me in watching the, the pilot episode in the TV series that we were given a little bit of a history lesson in that there seemed to have been quite an uproar uh, I don't want to say police violence but certainly situations where they were being attacked or targeted right and so whether it was by the 7th Cavalry or just by you know, outraged citizens etc or those acting out or lashing out to the point that it was mandated across the board for each state mm-hmm. that if you were going to be in law enforcement you had to wear some sort of mask or face cover and right. that's why now they've also started to bring, sort of revive that masked vigilante side by side working with law enforcement. Right. And so Good. that's where, of course, Regina King's character, Detective Angela, comes into play as her codename Sister Knight. Right. And she, like you said, she is a former detective that, um, I believe she got shot, uh, if I remember correctly, but she basically, she left the force after that and decided to become a baker. I don't really know where that came from, but, but it's looking more and more like the baker is just a front uh, to her her real job, which is apparently Sister Knight, vigilante slash superhero. And so we see that her, I don't know if you call it her secret, kind of like a bat cave type scenario, is within her baking shop or her bakery. In this case, it'd be a baker cave. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It could, I guess you could call it that, yeah. Yeah, so going back to the squid storm scene, uh, she goes, she takes her son home, and when she gets home, her husband tells her, oh, you've gotten this, this beep on your pager for the last little while, and she looks at it, and it says Little Bighorn on it, and apparently that's code for something, because she says, oh, I gotta go to the bakery, and so she leaves her husband and goes to the bakery, and she we come into contact for the first time with Louis Gossett Jr.'s character, which is named... I believe, according to the Wikipedia page, the character's actual name is Will Reeves, but we see him first as just this elderly paraplegic, and we find out some pretty big information about him towards the end, but we want to talk about a few points before we get to right. that surprise. Right, and so when she gets there and comes across him, he says some, He asks her a question, and he, we can tell that there's more to him 
but in that time, in that scene, he just seems like an old guy just sitting there not doing anything. But anyway, so she goes into her bat cave or her baker cave and changes and leaves and goes and picks up um, this character that looks like, you know, typical redneck, white supremacist type guy. Kind of fits the profile as a potential 7th Cavalry member, we'll say that. (laughs) Right, and so she takes him and goes to the police station where we see Don Johnson giving a a talk to the police. And at the end of his presentation that he's giving to the police force, we move into the office of Don Johnson where he has a conversation with Regina King's character. Right, he and Night Sister have a meeting in his office and of course Don Johnson plays the chief of police and Judd Crawford of the town mm-hmm. of the Tulsa police force and we get another little nifty easter egg where you really kind of have to be looking for it on his desk it's a book and it's not just any book it's Under the Hood which was written by the original Night Owl numero uno and that of course being Hollis Mason and of course if you've read the graphic novel you were able to get snippets of that in the original graphic novel by Alan Moore and of course, he is surprised to see Night Sister there sitting in his chair, and he of course starts to question her. You know, like, well, what are you doing here? What brings you into the office? And so, of course, she fires back and says, "Well, uh, given the situation that happened with the police officer being shot last night, why wasn't I called? I don't get a little bighorn beeper message until 2 p.m. the next day." And so you start to wonder a little bit about this police chief. It's like, well, if he's got this detective, you would think he would want to let her know and keep her abreast of situations. Seems like a if it's a need to know basis. Seems like she's somebody that needs to know about this. Right. And so, of course, he again says, well, that doesn't answer my question as to what you're doing here. You know, what have you done? And she's like, well, I was being proactive. <laughs> right. It sounds to me like this has 7th Cavalry written all over it, so I went to the source, and I've got somebody in for questioning before anybody else could get out onto the streets and, you know, get the wrong person or try to turn this into something else that it's not. Right. So why don't we start asking this guy questions and seeing if we can get answers. Mm-hmm. And so he says, yeah, you know what? Let's take him to the pod. And so the pod is essentially this subliminal chamber. Yeah, it was really they, weird. Yeah, but they subject, I don't know if it's just 7th Cavalry members <laughs> or everybody that they interrogated this police department, uh, but seems to be, to them, a highly effective method because they use different imagery and repetitive questions to try and trip much the way that they would in a good cop, bad cop situation in a right. normal interrogation room. They try to talk to you in such a way to get a confession out of you. Right. And so, of course, that's where we get introduced to Tim Blake Nelson's character, who is codenamed Looking Glass, and he's kind of got this uh, really neat, cool, reflective mask that you know, essentially shields his face because we're also led to believe that not only are police officers masking themselves, but of course police chiefs, detectives, etc. Right. are also wearing some sort of mask, or if you're a masked vigilante, you blend in as well with well, police force. Had, did the police? I don't think the police chief wore one. He was the he? one that actually did not have a mask. So okay. I suppose if you're a certain elected official or maybe higher ranking official, maybe you get a pass, or it's hard right, not, or hard not to conceal yourself. To, on the same token, that could be why we see what eventually happens. Correct. Yeah, towards the end, that might <laughs> exactly be why he's so easily targeted. Right. And so, of course, from there, they try to get information out of him the polite way and fail. He's a pretty tough cookie to crack. They know 
more or less that he's not being truthful or that he is a part of this particular organization, the 7th Cavalry. And so, of course, Regina Canyon's character, that doesn't sit too well with her. She needs information. She needs it now. And so we get a nice, another callback, sort of a back-to-back callback. And she takes him into another room by herself and proceeds to beat the answers out of him and beats him, presumed to be to his death. Because there's, I'm assuming, standing water or some kind of puddle of water in this room. And it comes out of the swinging door and then followed swiftly by turned red by blood yeah which was a little a little much in my opinion but a little bit but it, like i said it's also that nice callback to the the movie right in that rorschach has to take care of some business or i think you might say i have to use the restroom and he takes out the crime boss right in the toilet and smashes his head into the toilet seat and of course water initially comes out at first and then it tur- is turned red right which i kind of thought it was much a little bit much in the movie as well but i mean honestly you know how big is this room and how much blood is being filled, but anyway... And so, of course, from there, they figure out their hideout. And mm-hmm. so they go and try to infiltrate and take out the 7th Cavalry, or at least cut off one of the heads. Right. And so they're semi-successful. They're able to get a couple people. We find out very quickly that some of them have taken the Ozymandias approach in that they have these cyanide or suicide pills to wear. Because, of course, the messenger in the movie, another, again, callback. Right. Uh, well, there's a lot of Easter eggs throughout this particular pilot, especially for those that watch the movie or read the graphic novel, so you will really appreciate it when you watch it i would recommend either at least either watching the movie or reading the graphic novel one or the other before watching this otherwise it's going to be very you're going to have a lot more questions weird. than answers <laughs> right that's for sure but so they you know they're of course heavily equipped to be deals with all kinds of ammunition firearms etc and they have these pills just in case they get caught they're mm-hmm. going to take themselves out and they are loyal to the core to their cause and before that it's kind of odd they're pulling apart watches for the lithium battery on the inside right. because we're told earlier in the show in the pilot episode that these particular actually it's not earlier it's after they are, are caught and they right. are like why do they have all these lithium batteries it's because that particular type of watch was outlawed because they found out that over time it was causing some form of cancer the or some watch or the battery the battery yeah was the lithium was causing some sort of sort of cancer or disease and so they did away with those that style of watch Mm-hmm. And so you almost wonder if they're trying to make some kind of chemical warfare, or like medical or, or viral warfare, right? Out of these, making like maybe lithium bombs, more yeah. or less. And so, uh, of course, we get one of the the last callbacks, and that is as they are trying to chase them in the plane that had the lithium batteries in the bag, they use the sort of a hybrid police version of the Night Owls uh, ship, right? Archimedes, I think, is what it's called. Correct. After the owl, yep. So, which I mean, I really. I liked it. I liked the callback, but at the same time, this plane slash helicopter or whatever it is, not very aerodynamic. No, it requires a lot of uh, jet propulsion <laughs> right. to, to be efficient. And but just the shape of it doesn't seem like it would, you know, promote very good flight. No, and well, oddly enough, of course, in the the plane chase scene, they take out their target. Mm-hmm. But in doing so, of course, Don Johnson's character, Judd Crawford, the police chief, gets a little too ambitious, right, and ends up malfunctioning and it does its own nosedive into the field. Right. And of course, you know, Detective Abar goes over thinking that you know, maybe the police chief is injured or worse and tries to kick in the eyeglass of the front windshield there to mm-hmm. no effect. They're able to rip off the door and climb out. They have a little laugh about it like, can you believe that? What a, what a crazy night, you know. And so they have that ease of, you know, weight off their shoulders like, well, you know, we may have not, we may not have been able to apprehend everybody that we wanted, but we've gotten some more answers as to what their plans are. We've been 
least got you know our foot in the door to see a starting point right. for our search to try and get this taken care of before it gets out of hand. And then from there, the show starts to really wind down a little bit. We're towards the end of the pilot episode, and we think you know everything's all right. Well, you know again we're on the right track to hunting these guys down, but we need to get do more research. Right. But we're going to call it tonight at night, and just before the night is over, of course, Detective Abar gets a phone call from an unknown assailant if you want to call it that, that knows who she is, knows where she lives, mm-hmm. and says, hey, come meet me. I've got your boss. Because, of course, before that, the police chief gets a call and goes out to take the call and tries to figure out a situation or see what's going on. He thinks, oh, I Well, he, he ends up, uh, like, basically after all that happens, uh, Regina King's character and Don Johnson's character, which are the police chief and Angela, they, you get the picture that they've been good friends for a while, and so both both of their families are, are having dinner together and you know you have this nice little family time moment and then when she goes home Don Johnson character tells his wife that he's gonna go see he's gonna go see the the police officer that was originally shot apparently he's awake and as the police chief he wants to go and visit him and see how he is so that's where he's going when he leaves his house of course unfortunately he doesn't make it right so someone throws out some tire tracks, stops the SUV right in its tracks, uh, SUV truck, whatever vehicle he's in. Mm-hmm. And so then you know right away, mm, okay, something bad's about to happen to him. Right. All the meanwhile, of course, Regina King's character gets that phone call. Mm-hmm. And, of course, she finds out, you know, hey, I've got your boss. And so she right. immediately, you know, gets her guns at the ready, tells her husband, don't, you know, answer the door for anybody. If anyone but me comes up in that driveway, shoot at him. You yeah. Know, keep the kids safe. I've got to take care of this. And so she goes to this open field, you know, nice little tree setting. And lo and behold, all to loop back to, you know, sir in the wheelchair, Mr. Wilbur. Right. We see, so at the very beginning of the podcast, in the very beginning of this episode, this pilot episode for Watchmen, we mentioned that the little boy from the uh, Tulsa Black Wall Street Massacre was given a piece of paper by his father that said, watch over this boy or watch this boy. And so it's this gentleman that's the paraplegic elderly man in the wheelchair Mm -hmm. holding that very same piece of paper. So you start to connect the dots and realize, oh wow, this is that same kid. Right. And of course, uh, we mentioned her going into the, air quotes, bakery that's also her bakery cave or her you know, little baker by day vigilante by night <laughs> right. hideout and she sees him in the wheelchair and he's making conversation and says oh when's the bakery going to be open she says soon and he's like oh okay I'll wait and then he asks her a random question as most townies often do he says do you think I can lift 200 pounds and she says you know just kind of get the conversation over with way like yeah I'm sure you could I'd almost have a nice day I don't have time to talk to you right which is funny when you at the end of the episode because it's roughly about you know what the police chief would probably presumably weigh. <laughs> right. And that's exactly who you see strung up and hung up in the tree. Right. And he's sitting below him and it's just you get the picture that there there's there's more to this little boy turned old man because come to find out he's he's like hundred and five years old and I, I mean and like you said, him asking that question, do you think I could live two hundred pounds? Something's going on with him. There's gotta be more to him than meets the eye. Right. It's the great way to end the pilot episode because you 
the show itself ends with a lot of questions, and so you, you're enticed to you know what's going on. Does this person, does this old man have superpowers? Right. Um, is, is he going to be important throughout the entire show? How does he know Regina King's character, Detective Abar? Mm-hmm. Uh, so there are a lot of questions, and so I'm glad it ended the way that it did. And we get one last really good callback, and that is it does this slow pan up the tree to the police chief, and then a slow pan down mm-hmm. all the way to the grass, and there's his sheriff's badge. And it also calls back to itself in the very beginning of the episode. It shows this, you know, well-to-do caped mass vigilante taking out their town's sheriff, saying he right. wasn't worthy of his badge. You know, he needs to be punished. Same concept applies for the police chief here, at least so that's implied. Right. We don't really know if he's done anything wrong one way or the other, but it's implied that he may be... Yeah, several things happen throughout the episode that lead you to believe that he may not be the most upstanding right. character. And so, of course, you get the close-in shot of the badge and then just a little drop of blood goes across it, much in the same way that the comedian's uh, smiley face in badge, whatever you want to call it, right. uh, also got in the movie and, of course, in the comic book graphic novel as well. So that was a, a nice way to, to close the show. Uh, but one thing before we close this podcast episode that I did want to talk about that we forgot to go over through all the mist of our earlier conversation mm. was the introduction of Jeremy Irons as Adrian Beat and him being a, a lord of a country manor right. and uh, certainly being the uh, you know older version of Ozymandias, but to the best of our knowledge in this pilot episode, all the news that we hear is that Ozymandias is dead. Right. You know, you see a, a newspaper just in a, a scene, a random scene earlier in the episode, and it, the headlines say, Adrian V pronounced dead, or something to that effect. And so, we don't really know what's going on with him. Uh, he does have some, apparently his, like, butler and his maid are, like, the only two people in his life it looks like while he's at this you know this castle slash manor that he lives in uh, he has a couple of different odd exchanges with them and so I'm very interested to see more of that which it looks like he's going to be a much bigger part in the series going forward when they show at the very end they show a things to come type scene or splice of scenes. Right and that's where we figure out that you know Will Reeves this particular paraplegic survivor in the wheelchair, he said he tells Regina King's character, right. Detective Abar, that he's 105 years old because she guesses that he's 90. She's trying to figure out how in the world he was able to hang the police chief. Right. And so he said, he corrects her and says, I'm not 90, I'm 105, and you need to watch your language. <laughs> right. And so, I mean, overall, it was a, it was, there were some odd moments, but it was a very interesting pilot episode. And like you said, it leaves you with a lot more questions than answers, which, I mean, honestly, if you have a show that you're interested in, then that's definitely going to bring you back next week to watch the next episode. Right, and that's how you want the... I feel like that's how you would want the pilot to go. Right, and I think they did a very good job of doing that. I will definitely be continuing to watch, and I would recommend it. I recommend it for anybody that's either seen the movie or read the graphic novel, or both. I was going to say, fans of either, I think, are going to enjoy this show a lot more so than just your average... TV right. show viewer um, because it is just so well done there are a number of callbacks to both the movie and the graphic novel as mm-hmm. well and so I'll be interested to see how these episodes progress if Dr. Manhattan will end up being a key character there's of course a list of the episodes available on the Wikipedia page and I feel like if we had to guess or predict or theorize when he might show up um, there's going to be a total of nine episodes in all and so the last three titles are in this follows episode seven an almost religious awe episode 
episode eight, a god walks into a bar. And then let's see, before that, actually, I sorry, went in uh, backwards order here. So episode six through eight, I, I would theorize, is probably when we'll see, if at all, Dr. Manhattan. But episode six is this extraordinary being. That would be an appropriate time to introduce right. Dr. Manhattan. As I already mentioned, episode seven will be an almost religious awe. And episode eight will be a god walks into a bar. So I feel like sometime between episode six and eight is probably when we would get that Dr. Manhattan introduction. But they may save that for season two, and they were just giving us a little teaser of his hand in that uh, you know, scenes to come, right, episodes right. to come teaser. You see, you see him in that as well as for the trailer for this show before it started. At the very end of the trailer, you see a glimpse of the back of Dr. Manhattan or somebody that has blue skin. I can only imagine that it would be Dr. Manhattan. Uh, so they definitely done a good job in teasing that without giving anything away or even really touching on it. Uh, I know that that's one aspect that is going to keep me watching is the prospect of seeing him. So, what would you rate this first episode? Oh, well, okay, so we're going to give this a, a true nerdy by nature rating. Yeah. Okay, sure. alright, why not? Um, <laughs> I would say for a, a pilot, and for it to be new, for it to be on HBO, it was on par with the other shows that I've watched, such as a Westworld or Game of Thrones, etc., mm-hmm. etc. Et I would give it a, a solid three and a half. I, I don't want to say four, because it's not a pilot that like blew me away to where I was like, I can't wait to watch episode two. Right. This is one that, you know, I could very well binge. You know, it's going to be a very binge-worthy show, say, around the holidays, but I don't want to say, they didn't quite do enough for me to be like, oh, I've got to tune in every Sunday. You know, for me, yeah. personally, I think that's that would be worthy of a four, you know, or even a five right. for our TV show rankings. But I think definitely a three and a half, because, you know, we are fans of the movie and the graphic novel, mm-hmm. and we enjoyed it quite a bit. It's a very watchable pilot, and I'm sure that I hope that the episodes will continue to get better and better and have aha moments or moments that make you want to tune in to right. start you know, every Sunday. So for me, I would say a three and a half nerd. Okay. Um, I would, just for me, just because of the teasing they've done and how they've set everything up, I would say four. Oh, uh, okay. Personally, just because I will be watching every week, um, at least for the next few weeks. If things go off the rails, then that'll be one thing. But just going off of the pilot, just my interest in the show is is way up there right now but I was also I will also say that we're not going to cover every episode just to be clear as if right. we're doing this this pilot review and we might do a mid-season review say right. episode 5 or 6 and then of course for the season finale obviously if we're still watching and interested in everyone that doesn't have too much of a gripe over the show right. or there's not too much controversy which I don't anticipate there being uh, we'll of course do in Trinidad by Nature fashion a recap the season and a season finale review especially to see how it ends, I'm assuming it'll probably be a cliffhanger. Right. Um, if we get you know, a renewal for season two, that'll be interesting to see. So it'll be really neat to watch this show develop. Definitely. And I, I don't know that there's a way to do it right now or if anything's even been said about doing it, but I would also be interested to see if they at all touch on or decide to bring in aspects of the new comic run Doomsday Clock. Well, that would be fun. Yeah, because that would bring in you know, like all of the DC superhero characters. So I would be, I think that would be a very exciting and good way to pull people back in if they did that. Now, like I said, that's pure speculation, pure just what I would want to see. Nothing's been said that I've seen anywhere.
anywhere or anything like that. So, but that's something that would bring me back every Sunday. Yeah, a- absolutely. Yes, yeah, I'm not as you know. I'm not a big TV series guy. Right. So that's why I tend to usually binge my shows more. I'll watch a bunch of episodes in a weekend and catch up, as opposed to trying to watch one every night a week or pick a day of the week right. to watch a TV show. So that would bring me back every Sunday if I knew they were not only doing Watchmen characters but bringing in some of our favorite DC characters right. as well. That the Doomsday Clock series does. Right. And and the fact that HBO and more than likely DC Universe is going to be combining in a streaming service in the future, I would say that that's probably not out of the realm of possibility. No, honestly. it could be a match made in heaven right. on down the road. So I would be very interested and in, I almost want to say that I kind of hope that happens, you know. We can hope. Yeah. We're, you know, we're always allowed to hope. Right. And so with that, that is going to wrap up this edition of Nerdy by Nature. As always, we thank you for listening. Of course, feel free to hit the like button, share this with anybody that you think would enjoy the show, or have them share it with anybody that they think would enjoy the show. <laughs> feel free to comment, let us know what we got right, what we got wrong, things that you would like to hear, or just to have open discussions. We are always open to having that discussion with you, the listener, and it's the easily the funnest part of doing a podcast. Definitely. And with that being said, of course, our next episode, we're going to stay along the same lines that we've been here with this Watchmen series. We, of course, in this podcast went over the pilot episode that just aired on HBO, Watchmen. Feel free to go ahead and give that a shot. Dive in and watch it with us. And also, of course, we went over slightly the graphic novel and the movie, Watchmen. Same name. So we're going to stick on that same train with Alan Moore. And this time, since November is right around the corner, we thought it'd be appropriate to go ahead and do a review of V for Vendetta, the graphic novel, as well as V for Vendetta, the movie. And so that episode will be on the way this next Friday around. Of course, it'll be right before the 5th of November, so unfortunately it would have been nice for it to work out for the 5th of November to fall on a Friday, but it's on a Tuesday, so we're going to try and get ahead of the game and do that full review for you. And we look forward to doing that episode because it's personally one of my favorite graphic novels. And so with that, again, we thank you for listening. Signing off, I'm Agent Smith. And I'm Captain Rogers. God bless. Thank you.